agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Just enjoying my Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. So, you know, uh, I wanted to mention before we get started, we were thinking about doing a feature uh, on the show, kind of an unusual type of thing, and we need your help folks. Uh, basically, it's this idea of of what things you think we believe and we're wrong about. Uh, and the idea behind this is oftentimes what we find is that we misappropriate beliefs or at least straw man versions of beliefs to other folks. And sometimes by just hearing from others what they think we believe and why it's wrong, we can sort of correct some issues that maybe have us talking past each other in cases. And we thought it would be an interesting thing to do. And so we're just asking you if there are things that you think we believe and we're wrong about, we'd like to hear from you about those. And then we'll talk about them on the, uh, on the on an upcoming show. And so if you're interested in doing that, you can just email us at mail at politicsguys.com. And we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. We want to thank our newest supporter, uh, Re- Rebecca, and also a very generous longtime friend of the show who uh, asked to remain anonymous, but who uh, uh, gave her some, as I said, generous support. So you know who you are, and I just want to reiterate my thanks for all you've done for the politics, guys. Thanks very much. And of course, as a supporter, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our shows. So once you become a supporter, you don't hear this, for instance, you know, uh, there's the, and, and of course, there's that full length bonus show every single week. And that's supporters only, as well as various other things at different levels of support. And to check all that out, you can just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And, you know, sometimes a monthly support pledge is just too much of a commitment. Well, you can support us also through PayPal. You'll find a support link at politicsguys.com slash support. And we also include these links always in our show notes. And finally, we want to make sure that lack of the ability to uh, support the show is never an impediment to you getting all the content we put out there, especially during these very tough times. So if you're in a situation where you can't afford to support the show, but you'd like the bonus content, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I am happy to get you set up with access to all the content that we're putting out. Okay, Kristen, so where are we starting today? Well, um, the we're obviously starting off with everything uh, that's sort of come in the aftermath of George Floyd's death uh, over Memorial Day weekend. And of course, there are a lot of sort of tangent issues and, and issues that are directly related that, that we definitely need to discuss and some new things that have come up this week. Um, so, yeah. So without further ado, I guess we'll start there. All right. Um, yeah. The nation is still reeling from the aftermath of George Floyd's death over Memorial Day weekend in Minneapolis, and things have stayed tense, to say the least. So while activists in parts of the country are still showing a commitment to peaceful protests and organized gatherings to raise awareness for police misconduct and brutality, um, in some other cities, they are dealing with protests that have escalated into violence, rioting and looting. Um, and of course, there are lots of other topics to discuss along with this, which is uh, something I mentioned, there's a defund the police movement that seems to have swept um, uh, sort of the left wing part of the Democratic Party. Um, and of course, where Biden and Trump stand on all of this. There's also sort of um, an interesting situation evolving minute by minute in Seattle as um, groups and protesters establish the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, which is um, being called CHAZ. Uh, several statues have been demolished and down. There are calls to rename military bases. Um, there are also some cancellations of some high-profile TV shows that came down the pipe this week. And sort of behind all of it, um, you know, if you, if you, you know, really pay attention to what's going on in Washington, D.C., there's so much going on all over the country. But behind all of it, there are efforts on both the right and the left to propose legislation that will address different aspects of policing and would, uh, I guess, presumably overhaul the way that police officers do their jobs every day. Um, Democrats have unveiled the Justice and Policing Act of 2020, 
Um, and of course, uh, you know, Republicans are working on their own legislation. They've expressed some concern that the initial efforts by Democrats was not bipartisan. And there's this, uh, I guess, this wish to work together. Um, it's an area where Republicans and Democrats can work together. And so they're hoping for some bipartisan support um, on some of these issues. So, yeah, so we have a lot to talk about. Uh, where, where to begin, Mike? Yeah, well... <laughs> I've been thinking, like you, like everyone, a lot about this. And, you know, I guess where I would like to begin is by taking maybe a couple of big steps back. And I understand that's very difficult. You know, it, it's a lot easier for, say, you know, like a comfortable white male like me. But I, I think it's, it can be helpful. And what I, what I mean by this is to step back and say, well, what do we need to be in place for uh, a well-functioning organization, whether it's police or otherwise, because I think almost everyone there now, I, I should I should take a step back from that and say that most people agree that there are systemic problems in policing in, mm -hmm. in America. Now, some people will say that they're they're racially focused. Other people will say that they're not putting that aside. We have our, I'm sure, differing views on that. Most people would it would admit, I think, maybe not Donald Trump, but that it's more than just, well, we have a few bad apples. I, I don't think the, the few bad apples uh, view of things is really all that viable. And I think there's bipartisan agreement that something needs to happen with policing. And that's why, you know, House Democrats and Senate Republicans are both working on plans. So I think you would agree with that, right? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, you, you won't. Yep. <laughs> so if we start from there, I say, I've been thinking a lot about, well, what do we need to have better policing? And just keep it in that sort of non-racially changed way, even though I think there are you know, major racial components. Uh, and it seems to me that you need three things. Number one, you need a clear, well-defined mission that's not overly broad and not unrealistic. And again, this is for any organization. Number two, you need the right people in place to to advance, to kind of reach, try to reach that mission. And then number three, you need the right incentives to ensure that people keep their focus on that mission and not go off and do other things that aren't related to it. And, and it seems to me that when we look at policing in America, in, in many instances, that we have problems with all three of these components. Take the first one, for instance. There's been a movement that I think it's a little more of a libertarian-based thing. Uh, not the not the defund, but what's what's been called the unbundling movement, mm -hmm. right? And, and the argument here is that the mission of police is just simply way too broad. They're traffic patrollers, they're social workers, they're they're tax collectors by building revenues for speed traps and other things like issuing citations. They're they're these street warriors type of thing, and it's just asking any one organization to do too much. And, you know, I think at least that's something that we should we should consider. And I was kind of curious what what you thought about that is, because, of course, if you have a mission where you're trying to do, a, you know, a dozen different things that are all over the place, it's going to be tough to be an effective organization, no matter what people and incentives you have. So so what do you think, Kristen? Is the mission of police in America writ, writ large? Is it too broad? Should they be doing less? So it's, it's funny that this is the first thing you brought up because this was actually, I took a bunch of notes, uh, just, I, I was sort of, you know, picking my own brain last night and trying to figure out, you know, reading articles, trying to figure out where I stood on some of these finer points. Cause I think we all, you know, agree on some very basic premises, uh, you know, with everything going on, but you know, where do I stand in terms of moving forward? Because if, if, you know, if, if there's anything we do discuss and I think we do do well on this show it's, you know, how to, what solutions, where can we work together? What solutions can we propose moving forward? And I had actually written down libertarian solution up at the top of the paper, and I'm, I'm staring at it now. Um, you know, I, I am not a libertarian. I'm, I'm a Republican, but I have some, you know, I've said on the show before, I have some definite libertarian leanings. And one of the areas that I tend to sort of lean in 
um, sort of the libertarian camp wars is um, this idea of unbundling. I think that's a really good way to describe it, sort of untangling messes, um, you know, in terms of, you know, budgets being bloated and, and really police being overworked. I have a lot of friends who are, you know, members of law enforcement, different agencies, um, DEA, police, um, you know, federal agents whatever. Um, and, and this is, this is something that a lot of those law enforcement officials and, and a lot of people involved in law enforcement for many decades, this is sort of a sentiment that they share is that they're doing too many things. Um, the, uh, so I, I would agree with you there. Um, the issue that, that I have that, that seems to be coming up this week, and this was the second thing I'd written down is there seems to be sort of this issue of conflating defunding the police with restructuring the police or, or promoting reforms. And it's funny because I was, I was looking at a, several articles last night and, um, especially on the left, the, um, there's a sentiment that defunding, you know, to some sort of people more on the left wing of the democratic party, it would mean completely abolishing the police. And I think most people, I mean, you know, poll after poll says most people wouldn't support this. Um, I don't support it. I don't know where you stand on it. I, I definitely don't support something like that. But, you know, a lot of people bring up these situations like what happened in Camden, New Jersey, where, um, you know, they're sort of conflating defunding with restructuring. The police weren't abolished in, in Camden, New Jersey, five or six years. I think it was in 2012. Um, they actually just restructured the department to sort of root out corruption, and it was successful. Um, so, you know, there's, I, I think, you know, you have all of these these different programs that are tremendously helpful, um, but defunding the police would get rid of those programs, things like explore programs, school resource officers, outreach, um, especially in, in underprivileged communities and, and communities where there are children living in, in um, you know, terrible situations. And so, you know, the police do a lot of good, but there is a lot of corruption. And I think it's I think it's really tone deaf for anybody to say that it's not there and that there is to some extent, a lot of it is racially motivated. Um, you know, again, I think it's it's really toned up to say that that doesn't exist too. So I would definitely argue that this idea of unbundling, untangling um, this, you know, the the broad the breadth of what police do would be really really important moving forward. And I would also argue for reforms and restructuring over something like defunding. Something that's something I'm adamantly opposed to is defunding the police, but restructuring and reforming is sort of where I stand yeah. on this. And I think that's a great. But I'm I have a little more skepticism about unbundling uh, than than maybe some uh, libertarians do. But <laughs> but I do think though that at the very least, making making it clear what the various aspects of the mission are and not just sort of having it all be a big blur is is very important. So it's, you know, it's like I said, it's a, it's not just you can have a broad mission if it is very well defined and everyone understands the priorities within right. that mission and that sort of and that. And I think there's an issue with that, certainly, uh, you know, and, and that you mentioned the defunding thing. And my sense of it is that what the defunding advocates are arguing for for the most part, and there are some certain, you know, people on the far left who I don't think are, are representative in general of liberal thought, but that they want to see money that typically traditionally goes to police to go to the sort of social services and supports that would make crime less likely to occur in the first place. And I'm I'm all for that, but I don't want I don't think that that should happen at the expense of policing. I would like to see upfunding for social services, but not necessarily defunding for police. And that, that gets into that second point about mm -hmm. about the right people. And I really feel that one of the big problems we have is what we ask police to do. You know, there's this sort of they're, they're sort of like this weird combination of of. Uh, warrior social worker, if you will, you know, and, and if you, good description. because, because think about it, we want people as police, we need people as police who are unafraid of conflict, who are okay with very difficult, stressful, conflictual situation. That's a, that's a certain personality type, but yep. we also want people who are very diplomatic and skilled at de-escalating conflictual situations. And for the most part, that's a different personality type. Trying to find people who can combine both of those qualities is is a tricky thing. And I think what happens is the sort of warrior part of it 
tends to win out over the kind of wimpy social services orientation. And we see that, I think, in the culture of policing from academies on. And and, and I get that. But but I think if, if we are going to ask the police to, to do these roles, and I think it's inevitable because, you know, the police deal with a lot of people who are in dire straits and have mental health issues and all this. And it's not enough to say, well, we'll just give the cops some training, a couple of sessions. And all of us who are in any kind of a corporate business, whatever, working for the man in any way, know what most of those sessions are like. You roll your eyes. It's so easy to game the system. And a lot of people don't take them seriously. And, and so if we're going to ask people to do this, we need to make sure that we have people who have the right personality characteristics who are well suited to doing that. And and I think what that means is things like better psychological testing before admitting people, uh, uh, you know, and and also changing the culture of police training. But if we're going to be doing that, we need to understand that we're going to have to we're going to have to compensate police officers a lot more. I mean, yeah, given what they do, police officers don't really make that much. The median salary for police officers in the United States is uh, a little bit over $60,000 a year, meaning for folks, you know, statistically, meaning half make more, half like le- make less. And I use median instead of mean because it's less affected by higher low levels. That's right around where the median salary is for just general college graduates. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the demands, the risks, these the kind of unusual stresses of this job, the idea that, hey, you can get hurt or killed, you know, on this job. Yeah. I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, well, we're going to expect a lot more from these people. We're going to we're going to you know target much higher quality, not higher quality. And that this, I shouldn't say that we need to target people with different psychological makeups that are rarer in the population. Well, if we're looking for that, if that's what we need for the police to accomplish that mission, then we need to pay them accordingly. And that's where I agree with President Trump. And, you know, this week he said, we're not going to defund the police. I want to see more funding for police. And I think that's absolutely right if the funding goes toward the right sort of things, especially personnel, because if you don't have the right personnel, everything else doesn't matter you're going to fail. And so I think getting the right people in and paying them accordingly, given what we're going to ask them to do, what we should ask them to do, that should be a a top priority. And so that that's what I see about the about the people component of it. Well, when you you know, as you were talking, I started thinking about all these arguments I've heard over the years and some of the arguments that have come up in my own home. My husband and I discuss this all the time. He's a criminal defense attorney. So, I mean, it, it's funny because I, you know, like I tell people he, he deals with with bad cops all the time. Um, but, you know, we, we know so many good cops. So, of course, you know, there, there are there are outliers and there are exceptions. But a lot of times some of those issues that come up in, in the cases he has directly, they directly correlate with this with this notion that you're talking about, that there that maybe the culture has to change, that there are some reforms that need to happen. And, um, you know, the, as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, this argument has come up with teachers yeah. um, several times. Um, so I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show before. I was a public school teacher for six years. Um, and that's something like, a, yeah, it, it was a while ago and a lot of people don't know it, but I was working on campaigns and, and um, uh, right out of college. And, and as most of you, if you've ever worked on a campaign, you know, you're only working every two years and the pay isn't great. And I needed something to do. And, um, and I decided I really wanted to teach. I love kids that, you know, I, I wanted to teach English is what I wanted to teach. And, and I taught debate as well. So that's what I did in Miami-Dade public schools. I taught English and debate and I loved it. Um, and I had a passion for it for those six years. I really had a passion for it. I loved it. And there were, you know, I came across lots of teachers who had a lot of passion, but of course, so many teachers leave leave that you know leave their their jobs these jobs they love the kids they love the schools they love because of the pay um and because of you know the lack of resources and and you know they're just sorely underfunded and it's and it's hard you know as somebody who did this for 6 years I'll be honest with you it's one of the reasons I left um just because I I just couldn't support my myself on the salary I was making you know and um I you know I I talked to I've talked to people over the years who 
And I think we're, we're guilty of doing the same thing, largely in the right wing and the left wing media um, with police officers is, you know, we we polarize around the good and the bad. And we don't see all the people in the middle who are doing their jobs, who are trying to get by um, and who just aren't getting paid enough to do what they do. We, we put a lot upon teachers. And it's I think it's the same thing, like you mentioned, with with police officers. We put a lot of responsibility on them. We ask them to do a lot. And, uh, you know, I do think there are some fundamental problems with the culture. I think there are some, uh, you know, some some notions and some ideologies that exist that should not be there. Um, but like you said, I, I think it would be a fantastic idea to invest in those in those police officers, just like a lot of people advocate for investing in teachers. It's not so much that, you know, the people are bad, that, you know, they're there are bad teaching recruits or whatever, um, or teach, teachers who don't know what they're doing as much as you're asking them to do a lot and you're not paying them accordingly and you're not providing them with the resources. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, one friend who's a police officer and in all of this, I was texting back and forth with him. I'm, I'm friends with his wife too. And I was talking to her too. And they were saying, you know, in all of this, um, this is a good guy. He supports, you know, his family, he's a person of color and, you know, he, his, his heart bleeds for his community. Mine does too. I, 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 yeah, I get it. Um, but at the same time, he's like, we don't have the mental health resources. Every single day I come home angry and depressed and, and sad, and they just don't have it here in, you know, in, in Broward County, Florida, they don't have those resources. If they don't have it here, they don't have it in other places either. And so I would, I definitely would support, um, you know, outreach and, and sort of funding these programs that give police officers the resources and the training and, and promote a better culture. Um, and, and just to, to pay them more to, you know, to, to do better and to be better. I think that's terribly, terribly important. And, and I hope that that doesn't get lost, you know, it, it, with the media, the way it's been, everything seems to be so polarized. You hear about the very, very good and the very, very bad. And, you know, all these police officers in the middle, all these people in the middle are the ones you don't hear about. And those are the ones that are going home to their families every night and trying to work through all of this. They have such conflict and feelings. And, you know, speaking to some of my friends who are in law enforcement really sort of drove that point home this week. No, I think that's, that's a really, a lot of really good points you make. And one other sort of connection between police and teachers that I was actually thinking about gets into mm -hmm. that, that issue of incentives, that third point that I was talking about. And that's the role of unions. You know, for years, conservatives have said, that teachers unions are getting in the way of educating children because teachers unions, well, their job is not to care about students or education. Their job is to take care of teachers first and foremost. And that's not a, that's not a knock on them. That's what unions do. Um, but the same is true of police unions. Their job is not to you know, be concerned about the public safety or anything like that. Their job is to take care of police. And and that's okay. I, and I'm not trying to cut on them. You know, it's just like saying, well, what's the job of well defense attorney to care about the disinterested pursuit of justice? No, you, mm -hmm. you defend your client as best as yeah. you possibly can. And hey, the other side takes care of their case. It's the same thing with unions, but we have to recognize, I think, uh, just like that conservatives have a point in saying that teacher unions can get in the way of weeding out bad teachers and making it harder for us to improve teaching as a schools, as institutions. The same is true of police unions and deals that they work to make it harder to, to identify and punish police officers who have problematic records to say the least. And so I think, you know, if, I think the same sort of logic applies. Well, what do you think? Well, it, you know, you talk about unions. I, I kept thinking back to I when I taught, um, again, I'm, I'm relying on my experience, which is obviously not not everybody's experience. But uh, when I taught, I taught in Miami-Dade public schools um, and Miami-Dade public schools have a very active union. I know here in Broward, we have a very active teaching union. Um, and um, I actually decided not to join the union when I was teaching. I was one of the only teachers in my school who wasn't a union teacher. And one of the reasons I decided not to join was not because I don't like unions, but I feel like there are sometimes um, misguided attempts within individual unions um, to sort of better things for teachers. But but in as much they allow for bad teachers to keep teaching teachers that shouldn't be in the classroom. 
And I think that, well, I think that there are definitely some organizations that do a lot of good. I know in Broward, we've, we had, we recently in the last few years had some um, big reforms to unions, some, you know, uh, leadership was some new leadership, some sort of new blood was elected. And um, there, there was quite a bit of improvement from what I understand um, from uh, people I know who are on the school board and also teachers here in Broward County. In Miami-Dade, it was a little tougher. And so, you know, I think it largely depends on the union. It largely depends on the leadership. But, you know, I think one of the, one of the, areas where I disagree with a lot of Republicans on is I don't think unions are all bad. Again, you know, as partisan people, we tend to develop these really black and white feelings about things and unions, you know, that, that, that would, that's not an exception to that. But instead of saying all unions are bad or all unions are good, you know, maybe we work with, within the good unions and, and we try to promote some of these reforms and, and we try to, you know, help police officers and, uh, recruit good police officers. And subsequently, you know, in unions where there's, you know, corruption or they're protecting bad cops or, or you know, bad practices or, or whatever, you know, perhaps we raise awareness for something like that and we try to elect better leadership. So, yeah, I, I think it's just it, it's important not to, you know, paint over that with a broad stroke. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, but I think they yeah. can be very helpful. Yeah. And I, and I think we need to we need to uh, sort of understand the ramifications. So for instance, in a typical sort of standard, whatever, industrial union, auto workers or something like that, the, the price that the public pays for helping to ensure that workers have better conditions and better rights and, you know, healthcare and all that kind of stuff, that means that that increases the price of that vehicle by X amount, whatever, right? Right. But when we're talking about, say, teachers, say, in some cases, teachers unions or police unions, what that can also mean is not just increasing the cost of the service, but decreasing the quality and leading to issues yep. with, and that's, and, and so that's, we have to weigh that sort of thing. And so you're right. I think absolutely that not all unions are the same and we need to think about these on a sort of a case by case basis here. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that, another issue that's come up a lot and Jay and I talked about it a bit last week, uh, mm -hmm. and one thing that certainly seems to be a non-starter with President Trump is the issue of qualified immunity. And, you know, as, and that I think is a huge issue as well. And as I read the Democrats, uh, the House Democrats legislation, they basically uh, would end qualified immunity. It's not really a reform. It's just essentially ending, at least as I read the legislation. Uh, and once again, I was frustrated that in all the articles that mentioned it, they didn't bother to, you know, post a link to the legislation, but oh, well, you know, how hard could it be? Come on, New York Times, Washington Post. But I think, I, I think actually that, you know, it's, it's reasonable to have qualified immunity that still allows for good faith, are sort of reasonable belief defenses uh, saying that if, you know, if you do something and you and a, a reasonable person wouldn't necessarily think that that was a, a wrong against policy, what have you, well, that's okay. But the way qualified immunity is now in many, many places, it's just not the case. And so I think there needs to be some reform to that, but that's going to be a sticking point. It seems like um, that's something that I think on the left, a lot of people just want to do away with entirely. And actually, there are some libertarians who feel the same way. Justin Amash, as I mentioned last week, who, you know, uh, in, uh, introduced a bill to do away essentially with qualified mm -hmm. immunity. But on the right, there seems to be a very strong resistance to any sort of reform to qualified immunity. And I think that's a big problem. And I was wondering what you think about that. So the the idea of qualified immunity was something that was I also found was overlooked in a lot of the the reviews of the legislation that's being put forth this week, which which, which is frustrating, you know, because you know we we sort of we get into the politics of all of it, and we don't discuss, you know, in the media, we, they sort of brush over these finer points that we really these policy points that we should be discussing, and qualified immunity is is a really interesting one um, because I think most people, again, um, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but most people don't fall like black or white on this one. Most people say that you know, qualified immunity is something that, you know, it, it exists for a good reason. Um, you know, I think it, it shields a lot of these officers from being personally liable in situations where they're not personally liable, but at the same time, um, in issues where what they are, you know, in situations where what they did violates this established federal law, um, you know, they're, they're, 
exempt from it. And I think I sort of take a middle of the road approach. I sort of take that, I guess, that more tempered approach to to the idea of qualified immunity. And and I guess that's I guess that's sort of where I stand on it. I think it's a I think it's a much more rational approach. And again, policy isn't so black and white. And I, I just I really wish people would um, particularly journalists would would wake up to that a little sure. more that most of us don't feel one way or the other. Well, and you know, there's a there's a libertarian market oriented solution that some people are arguing for this as well. And that's yep. getting away with qualified immunity, just doing away with called qualified immunity, but requiring police officers to buy essentially malpractice insurance, just like yep. just like attorneys do. And then saying that, well, if you can't get insurance, then you can't work as a police officer, and then let the market figure out how that's going to be said and what the rates are and build that into it as opposed to having it done by done by the state. And I can see certainly where in the libertarian community that's very popular. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily it's not necessarily the sort of thing that I would dismiss out out of hand, because then you know that insurers would require records, disciplinary records, or else they would just say, hey, if I don't know who this cop is, there's no way I'm going to, there's no way I'm going to issue a policy to this officer. And so therefore that person would be stuck with that. And so that uses market incentives to improve behavior. And I think that's something that's, you know, worth considering. Yeah. I, uh, when you were talking, I, I, right before you mentioned that, I was thinking of that. Um, I had read a little bit about it last night and I talked about it with my husband. Cause like I said, he's a criminal defense attorney and this was something he brought up earlier in the week. You know, he said a, a lot of, you know, sort of professional people in, in these, um, <clears throat> you know, professional positions have to buy malpractice insurance essentially. And, um, it's an interesting solution. I'm always a fan of trying things that involve the market. I'm always a fan of trying things that, um, sort of, uh, how should I put this? They sort of motivate with people's wallets um, because I, I think, you know, there's there's in most cases, there's no more powerful motivator. I mean, like I was saying to, m to my husband last night, um, you know, most of us want the same things, uh, you know, no matter where we fall on the political scale. We want safety. We want security. We also want to make money. And we you know, most of us want to be able to keep our money, whatever that means, um, and and do what we want with our money. And if you're a police officer um, and, you know, we're, we're dealing with with these cultural shifts and, and all sorts of problems, you know, within police departments, um, maybe that's a way to sort of incentivize um, better action, um, you know, better training, um, paying attention to these changes that that need to occur in these reforms. So, yeah, I, I would absolutely su support it because I think it, money can be a very powerful motivator for some of these people. And also there are other things, too, that are involved, things like, you know, your reputation. There has to be some measure of accountability. And if that requires, you know, you know, taking a hit financially or, you know, losing a good reputation as a police officer, I'm all for it if it would work. Of course, one problem I should point out with that is, you know, a lot, a lot of folks in, on the medical side of things would say that, well, the malpractice issue leads to the practice of defensive medicine doing more than you might normally do because you're concerned about being sued. Well, defensive policing would be sort of a possibility and would be just the opposite. You could see situations where police would say, you know what, I can't afford to get involved in this situation. I'm just going to turn away because God knows what it's going to do to my rates or something like that. And of course, we wouldn't want a situation like that as well. And sometimes there can be these perverse incentives and that, that could certainly be an issue with that, which is why I would not, which is why I'm not, I would not be okay with just completely ending qualified immunity because mm -hmm. we don't want the police to just back off and say, you know what, I don't want to, I'm not going to get in trouble. Uh, so if I don't do anything or if you know what I'm, if you know what I'm saying. So I think that's, you know, that's a consideration certainly. And, you know, I, in a way, there was a lot in the uh, Justice and Policing Act of 2020 uh, that I liked that Democrats. Mm -hmm. in, and I think a lot that there's going to be some bipartisan agreement on, like, for instance, oh, yeah. banning chokeholds. I think, yeah, sure. Um, mandating federal law enforcement to use dash and body cams. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And providing incentives for or encouragement for uh, states and localities to do the same. Sure. Uh, it seems like there's going to be some bipartisan agreement on some sort of a, a national database for police misconduct. I think that's going to happen. Uh, limiting the use of no-knock warrants, I think that's you know likely to happen. Limiting transfer of military equipment to police agencies, I think that's going to happen. And also, a little more controversially, maybe giving the Department of Justice 
greater power to investigate bias and misconduct and providing grants to state attorneys general to do the same thing. Um, and so I think those are all good and useful things. I think that, that it's going to flounder on the shores of qualified, uh, uh, shores of qualified yep. immunity. And that gets in, I think, to the politics of this, because there's a thing in, in policy, uh, uh, policy analysis we talk about called the sort of the policy window. And Kristen, I know you're familiar with it. And basically, the policy window mm -hmm. tends to be shut firmly during election years, especially during mm -hmm. the six months leading up to it. It's, it's pretty rare for any significant legislation to get passed right before elections. And I would say even more so now, because right now, there's a pretty strong incentive for Democrats to not concede anything. Because mm -hmm. right now, if I'm, if I'm Nancy Pelosi or, you know, someone in the Democratic leadership, I'm looking at the polls, I'm looking at the economy and everything else, and I'm thinking there's a, there's a really decent probability or shot, you know, that in eight months' time, whatever, six months, yeah, eight months' time, I guess January of February of 2021, we could have Joe Biden as president. We could have basically the same majority in the House, and that's all you need in the House. And we could even maybe have a majority or at least 50 in the Senate with, uh, with a vice president who would be on our side to break ties. So what's our incentive to compromise with Republicans now on sort of a half a loaf thing when by waiting six months, not only do we end up with more than we could have gotten otherwise, but we also have a great issue to run on, which increases our chances of getting a bigger majority and winning the election. That's a pretty strong political impetus to say, here's our stance and we're not going to move on it. And if you don't want to, if you don't want to come entirely over to us, then, hey, pay the political consequences. Yeah, I I guess I, I agree with you to some extent. I, I definitely believe that the policy window is very, very real. And it's something I think we've talked about on this show before, how you know, very little actually gets done leading up to an election, because I think it's sort of one of these situations where everybody feels like they're between a rock and a hard place. You know, they have this position. And if they make a move, um, especially a big sort of sweeping policy move, um, they risk losing voters. You know, they risk losing people. They risk losing people in the middle, shifting one way or the other. Um, and unless something is sort of universally popular, which I feel like in a lot of ways, a lot of what's in this legislation is is bipartisan, which is why I had an issue. And I, and I sort of I understood the arguments of a lot of, you know, Republican leaders who said, why wasn't this a bipartisan effort? Why didn't you invite us into this? Why didn't you why didn't we come together? We could have come together on this, but you didn't do that. And, you know, the bottom line is that I understand why Democrats didn't do it, but that I don't think it makes it right. And I'm not saying that Republicans don't do it, too. I think if Republicans had the ball on this one, um, you know, I can't say for certain that Republicans would have invited well, bipartisan. We can actually. We can because we know in the Senate that Republicans are working on their own thing and not consulting with Democrats. No, so. no, no, I know. But if but if it had been, if it sort of had been, I sort of feel like that was retaliatory in a lot of ways. Nah, um, you know, when you have nah. people like Tim, you don't think so? No, not at all. I think Mitch McConnell has zero interest in working with with uh, with any Senate uh, Senate Democrats. No, not at all. I think this is there is not a single doubt in my mind that that, that the Republicans have have no interest in working with Democrats on this. No, no, I, I feel, I feel extraordinarily confident about this. This is not a democratic intransigence thing. This is just, this is just polarized partisan politics of, you know, 20 of the 21st century. So no, but, uh, but you know, and, and I actually, I actually feel uh, disappointed that the Democrats didn't go bigger on this. I would have loved to have seen instead of maybe I, I, you know, titles are of legislation. Of course, that's a that's a symbolic thing. But I would have loved to see something uh, called the 21st Century Policing Act that included, I don't know, tens of billions of dollars to state and local agencies to, to do the kind of broad sweeping reforms to really make that possible. And and that I also think would be in a way a form of sort of relief for state and local governments who could because policing that's a that's a pretty big chunk of, of a lot of budgets that are hurting in a major way. So here's a way where you could have rolled in pandemic relief, 
and policing reform, you know, with some really strong incentives at a time when states and local governments are desperate for that money. And so in a way, I, I feel like it was too small and it's an opportunity missed in a way. I would have loved to have seen something just really massive. And, and there's the time element, of course, because basically what happened is House Democrats cobbled something together from a bunch of proposals that have been around for a long time. But I really hope that what ends up passing is much, much bigger and literally transformative for policing in America. And that's not the kind of thing you can just throw together in a couple of weeks. That's the kind of thing that takes uh, a concerted effort, generally speaking, with the leadership of the White House and their policy team. And so my hope for this is that maybe there are some we can get some minor reforms started in this administration. But what I hope is that there will be a, there will be a Democratic administration and a Democratic Congress. And just like just like the Obama administration made it its first order of business with the Democratic Congress to focus on health care reform, I would love if a Biden administration and a Democratic Congress put the same energy and effort into policing reform and basically did that sort of thing for for policing reform. And that would be, in my mind, uh, just a, a, a wonderful, a, a beautiful thing to have happen. So that's that's what I hope will end up happening. So let me let me play devil's advocate for a second, because you mentioned sort of rolling out this big all of these big sort of sweeping changes and a big piece of legislation that brings about, um, you know, did you mention like covid relief and some of the issues related to the pandemic? Why? I, I guess my question would be, how would something like that ever get passed? I mean, don't you think that or I should say, should you think that? Um, some sort of broad sweeping uh, legislation like that that covers lots of different topics that are related in some ways and unrelated in some ways. I mean, wouldn't you say that there would be a lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans, but there would be a lot of Democrats who would say that that wasn't good enough and it didn't specifically address the problems related to um, policing and police reform and things like that? Don't you Don't you feel like maybe they would distract from some of the issues, some of the pressing issues that are at hand and have been at hand for several years now? Well, and let me be clear, I only meant it would be COVID relief in sort of an indirect kind of way that it wouldn't be focused just because there's so much money that goes into policing in this country that if if uh, major structural forms were tied to a huge inflow of, of federal funding, well, that would provide a greater incentive for state and local governments to say, man, we're just really suffering because of the COVID thing. Our rev tax revenues are way down. But if we agree to do these things, there's all this money that we can get. And that's you know typically how the federal government gets state and local governments to do things by just dangling that massive carrot of, uh, of, of federal funding. And I like that a lot better than a stick regulatory type of approach. So but I mean, I, I don't I don't think it I don't think it would have to distract from anything. I mean, I, I think that, you know, certainly issues of problems with policing have been endemic for for decades. You know? mm-hmm. um, and while policing is arguably well, not arguably policing, I would say, is better and less corrupt than it was, say, in the 70s or 80s. There is such a long way to go. And it takes, you know, sadly, it takes something like this to really focus people's attention. And there's going to be a short window for this as well. And I, I feel almost uh, it's a good thing in a way that it happened so close to an election, but it's not going to happen with this president. Transformative reform is not going to happen with this president. It's not especially, and it's not going to happen with a, with a Republican Senate led by uh, a guy like Mitch McConnell, who basically says, you know what? We do, we do Donald Trump's bidding and we're not trying to convince them of anything. We're just following wherever our leader leads us. And that's what Mitch McConnell has basically said. I'm not I'm not interested in talking about advancing anything that doesn't have the president's full support, because under Mitch McConnell, the Senate is not a co-equal branch, a co-equal part of government. But it is like some sort of a parliamentary system with, you know, Mitch McConnell apparently reporting to Donald Trump. And that's not how it should be. But that's how it is. And as long as that is how it is, we're not going to see any transformative change. That's what people want. That's what people have a right to not just expect it, but demand at this point, I think. And it's only going to happen. It's only going to happen, I believe, if we have unified party control. 
I that's I guess that sort of answers the question I had, which is the question a lot of Republicans have is why didn't this happen before under Barack Obama or why didn't it happen during his first yeah. term, his second term? Um, yeah, I guess I, I just I have a lot of questions about, um, you know, about the seriousness of this, whether this is something, you know, in the last six months that has sort of come up. I mean, obviously, these are legitimate concerns that have been brewing for a long time, but whether we're making too much of this politically and whether this is an area where we can come together and say, OK, let's create these reforms. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because the the chances of one party in my in my purview, you know, the chances of one party sort of taking sweeping the Senate, sweeping the House and then taking the presidency are, are pretty slim. At well, this let me point. let and, me push back yeah. on that, because right yeah. now, if you look at the polls, the chances of, of Joe Biden becoming the next president are pretty good. Um, now, and it would be it would be just counterfactual to disagree with that based on the polls. And I'm sure you would agree with me there. Based on the polls, sure. OK, so there's a reasonable chance that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. Number two, there's also looking at the polls, there's a there's a very good chance that the Democrats will maintain control of the House of Representatives based on polling numbers and based on yeah, what we know. I would agree with. Yeah. And then finally, if you look at the Senate polls and the, and the fact that Republicans are defending a lot more seats, that there is a reasonable chance that we end up with a 50-50 Senate. I mean, it's certainly not a long shot at this point based on where we are with polling. And so if all three of those very possible things come together, you have a situation where if Democrats are willing to go that next step, and abolish the filibuster, which they can do with a majority, then they would be able to push through, you know, some fairly significant reforms. Now, that would require some Democratic senators who are sort of centrist to maybe make some tough decisions. But, uh, you know, I, I certainly think that there would be the pressure on them to do that. And, and that's that is what I hope the outcome is. Um, I'm OK with the filibuster going away. Because I want to see that sort of transformative change. I think it's high time. And I think the reason why we didn't get it in the Obama administration is because, well, there were there was that was not Barack Obama's main issue. Certainly health care reform was, you know, that big issue. And, of course, it was on the heels of another economic major economic crisis. And, you know, another thing we learned from policy is that you can't if you're focusing on everything, you're focusing on nothing. If you're a new, if you're an incoming president, you basically have a shot at one, maybe two major things in your first couple of years, powering just really unusual circumstances. So the Biden, if, if there's if there's going to be a Biden administration, they're going to need to decide what are the one or two things that we desperately want to do. And I think this should be top of the list. And I think if they put it top of the list and all of those very reasonably possible things happen. We can see transformative change. That that's that's my hope, and I think this is the moment for it to happen. Well, I guess a lot of this is premised on the fact that you know that that you probably put a lot of faith in these polls. I guess I don't put a lot of faith in these polls because I've been proven wrong by them more more than once, way more than once. And in 2016, I felt like polling practices were really, really uh, were deeply flawed. Um, and really, there were only a few polls that got it right. And so, you know, I'm not saying that the polls are getting it wrong, but I don't put a lot of faith in the practices. I'm going to wait until we get a little closer to the election to make up my mind about which polls I believe and which ones I, I don't believe. Because I, I believe that, you know, in, when I was in grad school, my capstone project was on implicit bias. And I think there's a lot of implicit bias going on, a lot of bias period going on within um, polling practices. But you know, we shall see. I, I guess, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, and, yeah, and I, I understand, Kristen, it, it, it's it's got to be tough for you to wrap your head around the idea that that the Democrats could once again have unified control of government. That's that's tough. Not, I mean, we not, had to wrap not, I had to wrap my head around it, you know, when Trump came in. And so it's a it's not an easy thing to do. And I have some sympathy for <laughs> you. There. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not. It's not tough for me to wrap my head around it. What's tough for me to wrap my head around is the fact that, that we're being told one thing by the polls and time and time again, especially recently, things have proven false. And there's such a spread, such a point spread on these polls. And, you know, I just I guess what I look at is, is things like enthusiasm, you know, where's the enthusiasm? I'm not saying that, that, you know, it, I, th I think it's wrong to say that I can't wrap my head around a, a Biden enough. president. Sure, I can. Enough. 
I don't, I don't, you know, I don't loathe Joe Biden. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I have a lot of feelings about Joe Biden, but I don't loathe Joe, Joe Biden in terms of policy. Um, but I do think that it's really premature to, to sort of make those calls right now. I said the same thing in 2016, the summer of 2016. I was convinced, um, I, you know, that Donald Trump was not going to be the nominee just a few months prior to him becoming the nominee. And then when he became the nominee, I was convinced until election night that he was not going to win. And I was basing a lot of that on polling data that I was seeing. And I think, you know, we were sort of we're here. It's it's the beginning of the summer. We're sort of gearing up towards this election. There are so many X factors in place, sure. so many more yeah, even yeah. than in 2016. And between now and then, there are a million things that could happen. But I guess, you know, I'm a little disillusioned because, you know, I'm looking around. I, you know, I see that there are these really big pressing issues that that seem to come up during election years. They seem to they seem to come up, but then they seem to subside. And that's extremely frustrating because these are legitimate. These are legitimate concerns. I I, I do feel for the peaceful protesters because, they're, you know, obviously the, the rioting, the looting is a whole other thing. But I feel for these people. These are changes that have to happen. And I guess I don't understand. I do understand and I don't understand why we can't come together and create these sort of this big bipartisan push. To me, that would be the best possible case. But again, you know, that's that's sort of pie in the sky. Yeah. In an election year, that's not going to happen. These sweeping policy changes is not going to happen. And I guess I'm a little jaded. I, I don't I'm not sure that whether Democrats sweep everything or Republicans sweep everything or we're split once again and there's gridlock. I'm just not convinced that some of these things that we've discussed is, are going to change. Yeah, um, no, and, and, uh, yeah, I'm, and it's and, disheartening. It really is. No, and, and I, I think you're right. I am uh, on this. I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than you're. Maybe uh, I'm letting kind of hope kind of override my my natural, unfortunate it's not a bad cynicism. Thing, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing to let hope override your natural. But, but yeah, and also before I know, I know we need to move on. But before we do, yeah. I, I do, I do want to point out that you, you make you make some good points about the polls is that a lot of them are within the margin of error and plenty can still happen. Um, and uh, though, uh, from I mean, looking at it uh, from a kind of a fundamentals viewpoint, we know that generally speaking, when the economy's not doing well, when people are uh, in a situation of unrest, that tends to work to the disadvantage of the incumbent party and to the advantage of the you know the challengers. And so we'll see if that holds. I think it will. Um, but but as you said, it's still it's still a long ways to go before the election, and uh, a lot can happen. Okay, so I know we're we're almost. I I knew we were going to spend a lot of time on that. But speaking of elections, right? We did want to talk a little bit about elections, right? Yes. Okay. So, um, yeah. So the the next thing we wanted to talk about was actually something that happened last Tuesday. Um, this would have been on Tuesday, June 9th. So, um, this past Tuesday, voters in five states it was uh, Georgia, West Virginia, Nevada, North Dakota, and South Carolina uh, went to the polls. And um, the Georgia primary had actually been pushed back because of COVID. So it was sort of a makeup primary. And um, so I guess what we should probably focus on is almost right from the start, there were some really concerning issues that were taking place in Georgia and mostly within the Atlanta area. Um, while some pundits and state officials immediately cried foul and blamed COVID-19, most experts sort of noticed right away that there were overwhelming reports of issues with the state's new voting machines. Um, and those were brought into Georgia sort of as a response to, you know, calls of voter suppression, which were taking place in 2018. So there were lots of, I, I read about this story in lots of different news outlets and 538, I thought had the best uh, summary of what happened. They blamed the state's ineptitude and pointed the finger at polling sites specifically the ones in Atlanta, saying that there was no evidence of foul play necessarily, but officials were like clearly unprepared for uh, this primary using this brand new equipment. And of course, there was this back and forth between state officials and local officials. Um, state officials were accusing local officials of being, you know, having user error and being disorganized. And local officials were pointing at state officials and saying that there was inadequate training and the machines weren't prepared. And it was just like total chaos. And while this was going on, there were some other issues going on too in South Carolina, West Virginia, there were issues with absentee ballots going to wrong addresses. 
Um, I know in Nevada, there, there were um, issues of like understaffing at some of these polling locations. So it was just kind of a hot mess Yeah. <laughs> on Tuesday. Um, what were your takeaways from it? It, it's, it? it kind of got eclipsed by everything else yeah. going on. It's important, you know? Well, but yeah, because it, I think it's a maybe, yeah. a, uh, we hope, not a preview of November, but when, when right. obviously turnout's going to be higher. But, you know, to me, obviously, when you put together uh, uh, new machines, untrained people and fewer poll workers because of because of the pandemic this is this was something that you know as, as you mentioned you know, a lot of people saw coming uh but we didn't have a good way to, to deal with it except i think we did and you know to me it's all about it comes down to people again uh the mm-hmm. typical poll worker gets somewhere and then this varies a lot but you know 100 150 dollars or so for a day roughly and that's that's like a get there at 6 a.m and work yeah. until the polls close. And that's I've done it. It's not an, it's a long day. This is what I'm saying, you know, plus training. And this right now, of course, is in a very high stress environment because of all the public content, uh, public contact, right, during the pandemic. And so it's understandable that a lot of people, especially since so many poll workers are older folks, said, you know, I, I'm just don't feel, I don't feel comfortable doing that. And so what I would love to see, I think one way to really help with this, and it, this could still be done by Congress well in time, well, not well in time, but in time for November, is legislation that provides grants to local governments to increase poll worker training and compensation during the pandemic. Uh, this would not have to be that expensive, really. There, in 2016, there were roughly around the country, there were roughly 918,000 total poll workers. Now, we know that polls are almost always understaffed anyway, right, elections. So let's say we could reasonably use one and a half million poll workers. Well, uh, as little as, and I say as little as, because this is something that uh, Jeff Bezos could fund out of his back pocket, as little as a billion dollars that's directed specifically at poll worker salary and training, that would make that would make an enormous difference. And this could be a bipartisan thing because more well-trained workers, that means less likelihood of fraud too, makes it a lot easier to catch that sort of thing. That's what the right wants. And on the left, it means shorter lines, greater ease of access to voting. That's what the left wants. And if we can, something like that, it seems to me that's a natural bipartisan thing. And again, a billion dollars at the, at the interest rates that we can get borrowing rates now. I mean, you know, that this, this is a no-brainer to me. This is, I think this is one of the best deals we could possibly get. And I think, I wish someone would introduce something like this. Well, you should definitely run for yeah, office and know? introduce it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> might be, it might be in your future. No, I'm not, um, not a massive no, <laughs> no, me neither. That's why I'm not running. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's funny because when I was, when I was reading about this, I went back to my experience. Um, I've been a poll worker twice um, and I actually helped train poll workers in 2016 um, here in Broward County. So I know what a long day that is. And there is a part of me that says like, you know, now in 2020, looking back, I'm like, man, you can't pay me enough. I mean, you know, for a lot of the, a lot of the people who end up doing this, um, you know, I'm thinking that I knew a lot of people who did this. They were uh, retired people, um, you know, people who are, are, you know, living on a fixed income and that, you know, paltry amount of money, really, when you think about what it is that they're doing in the length of the day and the amount of the training that they have to do. And, you know, some of the costs incurred, they have to drive their own cars, they have to go to these trainings. It's it's a lot of time and it's a lot of energy. And there's not a lot of incentive other than just like doing your patriotic civic duty. Um, You know, I remember talking to people um, when I was in my county's Republican executive committee um, on the board. I remember talking to people and saying, oh, we need poll workers. And that's a really hard sell, you know, to, to people who have better things to do. Yeah. You know, they, they want to show up, they want to vote, and then they want to go about their business. And, you know, most professional people, um, you know, are people who are of working age or people with young children, which was always the situation I was in. I was working, I had young kids. They don't, there's no incentive for them to take a day off work to do something like this. Why would you want to do it? And so it, it's not the most, you know, attractive job, but it's a job that needs to be done. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's some truth to what you say. If we made the job somehow more attractive, if we made it easier, if we made training better, 
um, it would it would pretty much pay for itself in in terms of eliminating headaches um, yeah. because these issues seem to come up every two years where we're rolling out new machines, you know, which is a good thing. They're trying to fix issues of you know voter suppression and you know access to to voting and and things like that. But you know, like you said, these these polling sites are are horribly understaffed and. Um, you know, and it, it's funny because a lot of I read a lot of uh, op eds that said, well, COVID-19 had nothing to do with it. I think COVID-19 had everything yeah, to do yeah. with it. It's it's sort of this unspoken elephant in the room, you know, um, this layer on top of all of this. I mean, maybe there was a ton of ineptitude. I don't doubt that. Maybe, you know, the, the state of Georgia and certainly other states had issues rolling out, you know, absentee ballots. Maybe there were issues with training. Maybe they weren't ready. Local officials probably didn't know what they were doing. You know, maybe some polling sites were, were disorganized. Um, but, you know, this is one of those areas that that's really great because we don't know what things are going to look like in November, you know, c- coming into the election. And, you know, are we going to be dealing with COVID-19? Will there still be some of, the, you know, social distancing and, you know, some of these measures in place? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's confusing. Yeah. It's it's very confusing to to look at this, but I, I hope, like you said, I hope it's not sort of a a, a prediction of of things to come because it's it could only get worse when you you know when you increase when everybody's voting at the same time and you're increasing the numbers of people coming in and out of these polling sites. It, it can really only get worse. So, like, like I said, it, um, but if Congress acted now at a at the low bargain rate, yep. if you could even do it for half a billion dollars, that would make a huge difference. That would be enough time, I think, to at least be you know be helpful. And this isn't a big technological fix. This is just hiring and compensating enough people. You know, and this is the kind of thing that businesses do all the time. They recognize you can have the best tech in the world, but if you don't have enough people to run to run the the factories and the assembly lines and all that, then you're just you're, things are going to fall apart. And so this is a pretty, I think, not a simple fix, but it's something that's certainly well within the realm of possibility. And I know it's not going to happen, and that really just frustrates me and pisses me off. So I don't maybe I should call my congressman or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Steve Shabbat, if you're listening. Um, so, yeah, I, I know we're running a little bit long, but yeah. But before we go, why don't we just briefly kind of give our recommendations for the week? Uh, but I should also mention that if you want even more of us, we still there's so much we didn't get a chance to talk about, like, for instance, we were going to talk about recent Market. news. Yeah, markets and the Fed <laughs> and a rise, a rise in coronavirus cases in a lot of states and the GOP convention and Donald Trump's executive order on the International Criminal Court and maybe even a bit about presidential power in the 21st century. Some crazy ideas I have about that. So uh, a lot. And that's going to be all there for for supporters. but. Before we all get to that, so well, what is your recommendation for this week, Kristen? Oh, I've got a good one. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I just finished it. It's funny because I, I kept trying to, there was this book that I'm sure you've had books like this where you keep picking it up and you're reading it and you just don't have time and you put it down. So I've had this book sitting on my nightstand for like six months and I keep picking it up and putting it down. And um, it's, I, I don't think I've recommended it on the show before, but I read it and then I read it again. That's how good it was. It's wow. called Killers of the Yeah, it's called Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's by David Gran. Um, it's phenomenal. It's so what it is. It, it's a David Gran is a journalist, and but he writes like a storyteller. Um, he and and so I think probably he's sort of cap, capturing this wave in like enthusiasm for true crime uh, stories and you know crime podcasts and shows and stuff like that. And it sort of reads like a true crime novel, but it's rooted in a lot of history. And it was something I didn't know a lot about. And I'm surprised I didn't study it more in history class and sort of about just like this massacre of the Osage Native American people in Oklahoma. Um, and um, everything that happened when there, when oil was discovered in their land, and there were these sort of big oil barons who were leasing the land, and, and slowly the Osage were dying under mysterious circumstances. And really, what it sort of leads up to is the the, the beginnings of the FBI, um, which which is obviously a topic that really interests me. But I can't recommend this book enough. It sounds in description, it sounds a little dry, but it's nothing like that. It reads like a story, and I was just like transfixed, and I've read it twice now. Wow! So yeah, that's how good I thought it was. So I highly recommend it. It's, it, you know, it, it has some sad parts, some funny parts, but it's just, um, I think it's an important read too, just because of the topic and the subject matter. It's something we don't talk a lot about Native American history, but needs to be talked about. And this is, this is an important one. I highly recommend it. Very cool. <laughs> what about you? 
I am going to go in such a weird direction on this. This week, I'm going to recommend a lacrosse ball. Just any lacrosse ball. It doesn't really matter. And you might say, well, I don't even play lacrosse, Mike. I say it doesn't matter. I don't know about you, but this has been a very, very stressful time for me. And one of my best friends during this stressful time is has been my trusty lacrosse ball. I don't name it Wilson or anything like that or whatever lacrosse balls are named. But lacrosse balls are amazing uh, therapy tools. It is it is it continually astonishes me how many tight and tense spots I have. And a lacrosse ball is this cheap. You can get like one for, you know, like six bucks at Amazon, uh, even more if you buy them in bulk like I do. Think just you roll a little bit of lacrosse ball and it's just like, wow, I, feel, I had no idea that was so tight. And I feel so much better. Uh, I like them so much. I got them last Christmas. I got lacrosse balls for everyone in my department at uh, Northern Kentucky University. Uh, it's for my Christmas present to everyone. And uh, just it's a, it's a little thing that can make an enormous difference. So if you're suffering from stress, tension, a lot of us carry it in our, you know, in our shoulders and neck and that. I, I'm weird. I carry tension in my butt. I tend to be sitting on my ass a lot. And so... <laughs> Pretty much wherever you carry it, a little lacrosse ball, super useful tool. I'd also recommend uh, you need a little more guidance aside from just apply it to wherever it hurts. Uh, there's something called the Trigger Point Therapy Workbook that I have found invaluable for. You would be surprised how many aches and pains, toothaches, headaches, all kinds of stuff that tends to be related to this stuff. Amazing. Uh, probably one of the best bargains, one of the most useful things I ever picked up. And I will put links to both of those. You can find a lacrosse ball on your own, but the book you might not know, it's called the Trigger Point Therapy Workbook. Great thing. And we'll put that in the link. So there you go. I hope that helps everyone maybe be a little less tense as you're listening to the news and reading about, you know, massacres of Native American populations for oil and all that. Just pull out the lacrosse ball, roll around a little bit. So, uh, so yeah, but all right. So if, again, if you are interested in hearing more of us, well, and you're a supporter, that should be in your feed by Wednesday when we release our bonus show for everyone. If you'd like to get our bonus show and be a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, please know if you can't afford to become a supporter, that's no problem. Just email me, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will give you full access, access, I can say that word, access to that second <laughs> weekly episode. Um, and also, if you haven't already, it really helps and it costs nothing to subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That makes a big difference to us. And also, I should point out that I'm saying also an awful lot. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, there's our bipartisan politics subreddit, which is great. Uh, and that's at, uh, well, I don't know. I, I don't even know that the URL, but it's in our show notes. I know that. And our Facebook page where I have recently decided I am getting back on and doing more stuff on Facebook. Uh, that's Facebook. Good for you. I did the opposite. <laughs> well, you know, I kind of got, pushed, yeah, I got yeah. pushed off and I said, you know, I just don't want to deal with some of the nonsense. Then I decided what, you know, this is a forum that uh, this is not a public forum. And I just decided that from now on, I am just going to delete any ad hominem attacks. So we are ad hominem free now on the Politics Guys Facebook group. And I think that's a cool thing. And I'm happy to provide that other forum mm -hmm. as well for folks. And then we are also on Twitter at Politics Guys. Finally, the executive producers of our show, we really appreciate all of them. Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show is produced by us, Kristen and Mike. And we'll be back with a new show for you next week. We hope you'll join.